You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You guys ready? Sorry, I just had the fart. Okay. <laughs> Greg, keep that in. <laughs> guys, welcome to Knife Talk, podcast for knife makers, knife enthusiasts, DIYers, everybody. I'm Jeff Fader from Fader Knives. I'm here with Mareko Mamasi, Mamasi Fire Arts, and Craig is not here, but we do have the one and only Don Nguyen, Don Nguyen Knives. What's going on, guys? Hello. How you doing? How's the week been? Uh, good, good. Don, it's been so long <laughs> since I've heard your voice. I know. I mean, I, mean, I see your posts, and I listen to you, and I, and I love them, and your self-deprecating humor kills me. Yeah. But it's been a long time. Since we've gotten on the phone, we used to we used to get on the phone more frequently and just kind of catch up. Not but not super like once every couple of months or a few months, but it's been a while. I know it's been know. a while. But it used life, to be regular. Life is, and then life is busy. Life, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely COVID has changed a lot of things, and I think that that was I think relationships probably are one of them. And it's not for the bad or for the good. It's just the fact. Yeah, sure, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, Before, I'm older now. I'm yeah. I'm in a relationship now. Like things are just different. Whoa! Congratulations. So, what are you oh, like? Twenty two, twenty three? Yeah, yeah, just hit thirty two. Not are you kidding? That's <laughs> that's getting older. You little bastard. <laughs> I feel it, man. I feel it. Well, that's funny. It's a, let me let me tell you. It's about to get a lot worse. Let me tell you. <laughs> Mareko's thirty six. I'm about to be fifty. It's gonna get worse. Uh, yeah, I mean, you were just talking about taking a 25-minute piss. like Yeah, because well, those damn kidney yeah, stones, I mean, old man. <laughs> or is it, or is it, a, is it frankly, a, uh, a urinary you, tract issue? You want to know the truth? You want to know the truth? <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. Is I, I, I'm, I'm, we were actually, before we get on, you were talking about alcohol. Let's talk, talk about that, too. But I, when I'm on a podcast, I drink so much water during the day, and seltzer water especially. Like, I need a little salt. That it makes me have to go to the bathroom a lot. And if I'm in a podcast, what I don't want to do is stop it to go for a leak. So I will take five or six leaks before I go. And even if I don't think I need to go, I'll always take a whiz right before. No one needs to know it, but I just don't want to waste all the time. You know? Are you I sure it. it's not like it's part old of man. the ritual before? Yeah. <laughs> no, Are you sure it, it's not it, like it prostate funny. issues? 
I went to a guy. I went to a woman. I, we've talked about this in the podcast. I went to oh, someone, yeah. and then I had the finger up my ass. The prostate's fine. Everything's fine. And the, I said, the woman says, do you have any problems? And I said, yeah. I, I go to the bathroom at night. And she goes, well, do you drink water before you go to bed? And I'm like, yes. And she goes, well, stop it. And that was the end. <laughs> that was the end. I don't have nothing wrong with me. But the problem is, is I like seltzer water at night. I don't want regular water. I want ice cold seltzer water. Uh, so you're, a, you're a bougie bougie dude <laughs> oh, let's not talk about the bougie we gotta talk about uh, seltzer water because i found the seltzer water i got in spain it's called uh catalan it's called vichy catalan it's salty vichy. seltzer water okay. it's salty seltzer water it's unreal it takes a that couple, actually sounds like it's up my alley it takes a little bit of time to get used to it but once you get used to it it's unbelievable and i was drinking it when i was in barcelona talk about bougie all the time and then i found a spot that could get it in new york it was like nine dollars a bottle, so it was just like oh, what the f- so, what? T- so Tomer told me. Tomer says, "Just put some salt in your seltzer water and shut up." So I get the, <laughs> I get the cheap generic seltzer water. Maybe I'll sprinkle a little salt in there and bingo, bango, uh, bongo. Salt. Oh. Again. I got you, Don. Yeah, what's going on in the world of Don Win? <laughs> Man, so it's summer again. I'm acclimating to the heat. Apparently, it's also like some record-breaking heat wave here. We're gonna have like the most days over like one ten or oh, whatever. Yikes! <sighs> it's Arizona. Yeah. It's Arizona. Yeah. Why do you do this? Well, there's to that. It's cheap here. I don't know. And there's good food. <laughs> okay. Right. Right. I don't know. Just and there's of good Tucson, people right? too. It's it's a lovely place aside. From... I I am in Tucson. My shop is like on the outskirts of it. Hence the cheap part. You. Um, but yeah, there's good people. There's good food. The, I mean, the cost of living for now is not too bad. And I've just been set up, and I got a good system here. It's just hot as fuck. Yeah. Mm. But and then- ideally during July and maybe August, I would just like frig off and do something else for a month or two. You'd be yeah, a snowbird. Where would you go? I know. Yeah, I would. Yeah, what where would you snow- go? Is it a snowbird? Is it a snowbird if you're fleeing the heat? Oh. Hmm. You're, you're, I think it's you're trying to else. find the cold again. If you're fleeing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. I don't know what that's called. So, Don, you're going to be, you've done a lot of teaching, especially I know you were, were you teaching with Grizz for a while? No, we've, we've only done our, our classes at Desert Metal Craft. Okay. And they're just like the. I've done a couple sharpening classes. I've done a couple handle classes, but our like the main ones that we do is just like chef's knife, like technical. You get into it, learn how to grind, um, learn how to do the geometry, and really get nitty gritty into like the, the nerdy mm-hmm. shit. That's that's really been the main class that we do. We're doing that again this November, and it's gonna be it's only gonna be one class this year because I, I was getting a little exhausted of doing two a year. It doesn't sound like much two a year, but it's like, all right, well, we've got to like halt our our normal production, our normal rhythm, mm. get into class mode, uh, prep for that, like make sure all the students are taken care of, do the class. It's like a week of work and then the weekend also. I lose my voice completely. I'm not good at that stuff. Right. And I almost feel like sick after we're done just because it's like, okay, we've got to pay attention to every single student, make sure they don't you know, like hurt themselves or, you know, mess up their shit. And then uh, it's a lot to keep track of. And plus, you know, like kitchen knives are hard. It It's not yeah. just like grinding, like, I don't know, like 
some outdoor knife. Like we're working, I'm teaching them how to make a zero edge. Oh wow! And it's it's tough. Yeah, and it's not my equipment, so it's it's uh interesting for sure. The hardest Can you tell thing us a little bit. Noticed, oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just gonna say the hardest thing I've noticed in terms of uh, teaching is you have to get to the point where you can almost predict problems that are going to happen with someone's work. Because, oh my God, and yeah. You be, and you have to be able to jump in before it happens. Otherwise, you know, the, not only is the expectation of the student to do a good job and have a good time, but at the same time, they gotta, you, you, gotta, you gotta be able to jump in there to make sure things don't fall apart. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it's a lot of like gauging the student as best as you can as early as possible. Like there are some students where you're like, okay, this guy might need some some help along the way, and then there's some guys you're like, oh, this guy seems like he's doing okay, and then an hour later we're like, oh god, what have you done with your like? They're they're confident <laughs> enough where they're they're just gonna run with it, and then you look back and it was like, oh, like you're you've done a good job, but you haven't done the correct job. Yeah, and yeah. it's yeah, it's a lot of uh, just paying attention, like back and forth. It, it helps that Sam teaches with me like that's a huge part oh, nice. of the class it's like sam's teaching also he's a he's an incredible teacher actually in some actually in a lot of ways he's a better teacher than i am because he had to learn from me who didn't know how to teach at the beginning mm. and i was at the, when when i was first teaching sam i was like well you just do it this way why can't you just why can't you just do it like that he's like i don't know what you're doing you're just like magically taking off the, the grinder and it looks like a hundred percent done and here i'm just struggling and he had to learn like the really hard way. Just like, here, I've done this. Is it good? I'm like, no, you got to do this. And it's like, okay, an hour later, how's this? I'm like, you got to go a little further. An hour later, he's like, how's this? I'm like, you've gone too far. Yeah. Mm. That's it's interesting. years I, of pattern recognition. And now he's. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I struggle yeah, with that. I was just going to say like, he's. Yeah. Yep. When, when it comes to teaching for me, it, it, I, I have the same issue with trying to articulate what I'm actually doing because I just kind of just do it and I don't think about it too much. Um, and the way I learned some of like my foundational stuff when I was working for Bob Kramer was mostly through just ob- observation. There wasn't a whole lot of articulating. It's just like, watch what mm. I do, do it. And that's what I did. And so now trying to get into more of the teaching stuff, I, it, it is a major challenge trying to articulate like, what's going on? What are you thinking about? Oh, yeah. What is your body doing when you're doing this particular kind of grind or this handle sculpting and all this kind of stuff? Because I don't think about yep. any of that stuff. It's a lot of troubleshooting because sometimes they, the students run into problems that you don't necessarily run into yourself. Like a, a really common example is like, we're trying to teach them how to do like two main facets on the, the blade grind so that they could they, they can later blend it. But we do two facets so that we could tell them this point needs to be higher or this point needs to be lower and you can adjust according to like the bevel height or you know like the intersection between the bevels. And sometimes students will bring the knife back and you're like, we're having trouble like getting definitive bevels. Like there's just like mm. ten different ones in this one section and we don't know how to get like really clean crisp ones and then you know like that makes me think it's like okay why why is that happening and how can we help them get to a point where they get like better grinds in general and we've noticed it's just like sometimes it's like okay we see what their hands are doing 
we we know something's not quite right, but we don't know exactly how to make them get the results that we want. Sam's really good at that. He's like, okay, your push stick is slightly too low. The angle needs to be a little bit higher. You need to apply like 20 point, 20% more pressure and go at a 10% faster rate. He's incredibly good at that. Oh, wow. And I'm really good at like bigger picture idea. I'm like, okay, your knife is cutting a certain way. You need to introduce more geometry at this point or something like that. But I won't be able to tell them like how to do it with their hands, not as well as Sam. So we work really well as a team, but like totally different. Right. And and can you tell? So Desert Metalcraft is in the Tucson area, is that right? And is it started by Rich Rich Greenwood? Yeah, started Tucson that right? Area. Rich Greenwood and Liz Cameron. Liz is a good friend of ours. She's a metallurgist in in Arizona. Killer. Cool. What else has been doing? You've been forging more blades, I think. Forging and uh, and making Damascus. And you're yeah, doing production a little work. Bit more. Yep, we're we're doing a little bit of production, not like big scale production, more like small batches here and there. We're gonna, I mean, the plan is to ramp up a little bit, but I don't think it'll ever get to the point where like we're making like, you know, a hundred knives at one one sitting. Sure. Um, it's mainly just for consistency in the business like i was talking with jeff about like the future of the business that we want to see ourselves in like five years or or so and one problem we've had is like business has changed in the past couple of years and we we can no longer do what we've been doing before and we were able to sustain the business off of custom orders like it it's fairly easy to rack up a whole list for customers because like people know what they want um, and they, they love customs. The problem is, if it was just me, that would be, I think, okay. But I'm working with Sam. Sam is really good at knife making, but he doesn't have like the vision that I do for every single knife. He doesn't, he doesn't do the design work. He doesn't know where to take the geometry based on like this, the specifications or the descriptions and stuff like that. Like That's stuff that I do. And so if we're just solely relying off custom orders, I'm micromanaging pretty much every hour for every step because he needs to know like okay how thin how much convexity what is the profile going to look like and you know all sorts of little details and a lot of times the customs i don't even know what i want until i start working on it so it's sure. it's been a logistical nightmare trying to balance that kind of stuff and i was like man i'm getting burnt out if we have to keep doing this for two years like this i don't know if i can keep it up so that was the impetus for starting the i mean i've always wanted to do like the small batch stuff but this is really the kick in the ass to like start the design series and have more sustainability more consistency in the business and also have something that's more accessible than our customs like we only make a few customs like every now and then Mm -hmm. that makes it expensive right Uh, what's interesting Well, what's interesting, you know, P.S. Mareko, I think you're on a bit of a delay because I can I can hear you oh, and really? I can see your volume at the different. Yeah, there's okay, like a delay, sorry. so I'm going to be backing off a hair on the, in the in the conversation. I'll back off on the conversation. It's fine. I guess the interesting thing is for me um, talking to you, Don, is you know your 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 feelings towards this business and the sustainability. And I think that what's interesting is is I think when most people look at you as a knife maker. They see this, you know, you, you're the, the young 
you're part, you're the face of the the you've been on the cover of Blade magazine, one of the first knives, not a chef knives to be on there. You're kind of the blade, the the face, the young gun, you know, culinary guys, custom knife makers. And what's interesting is is this concept of how do we maintain and grow as a business and take people with us, you know, employees and be part of business and also maintain a degree of our artistry for lack of a better term. And it's interesting that you're very aware of that and to try to think about, well, what are the ways in which we can kind of keep this going? See, obviously you're not going to get million dollar guys every five minutes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to think about this stuff or else like we're just, we're going to find ourselves floundering. I mean, that's where I found myself actually um, the past couple of years. It's like, I never anticipated a scenario where like, the economy and the market would change so drastically. And then I, I was just like, Oh shit. Like what's happening? Like now what? Like social media is changing. The market is changing. The whole like scope of knife making in general is changing. Like it's, it's all different. And so I was like, okay, I no longer can count on everything being in, you know, the ideal scenario. I almost have to be, uh, I almost have to, be used to things being abnormal now so that's where i'm at like if i want to do this for the rest of my life or like you know a long ass time i have to think about that stuff hmm. huh it's the whole thing is very interesting because it is this like there are there's are so many things that are not dependable and the knife making business is, is not dependable. And one of the reasons why is because I remember about seven or eight years ago, there weren't as many culinary guys as there were now. And I remember yeah. when I first started making culinary knives, I saw that it was a bigger market for, you know, because your customers are men and women, or it's not just hunting knives. And all of a sudden you have a bit, you know, everyone, you got to cut your, kind of cut your sandwich with something, you know, and it, and as of now, so many more guys who are doing these traditional hunting knives have pushed over into the culinary game. And now the culinary game is, I hate to use the word swamped, but it's like, you know, people are realizing, especially knife makers who learn this on YouTube or wherever and n nothing wrong with it. They're starting to notice that, hey, maybe I can get more money if I make culinary knives. And now I get messages from guys all the time saying, I want to get in the color knife game or I am in the color knife game. How can I get it better? Yeah. So, yeah. What do you think about what's going on in the culinary world? Oh man. I've been thinking about this for a long, long time and I don't know if I have a, a good answer. Somebody actually just asked me like, do you think there's a bubble in the chef's knife world? And I, I almost want to say the bubble has popped, but I don't know for sure. I, I definitely noticed there are way more knife makers getting into it, like starting with kitchen knives, not just like starting with knives in general, but they're like getting into it with the intention of like making kitchen knives. That's how I started, but that was rare. And I feel like the rate of growth for kitchen knife makers and the rate of growth for kitchen knife consumers is not equal right now. I feel like it has grown, it's grown together in the past. But right now they're they're a little bit biased towards one side, and that that side is the knife maker side, in my opinion. Like I just see so many new knife makers. Like they're making good work, but like, how do you stand out when when everybody is seemingly jumping into this this world of kitchen knives? And I don't know. It 
it makes it really interesting to kind of like observe and try to see what's happening and try to not anticipate, maybe anticipate, but like try to plan for what could be next. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Baracko? Well, I think um, it, it, it. I think it is um, the the knife, especially the culinary knife, is a lot more awash in makers. There are so many more, like you guys are saying, and um, while you know, ideally, the goal is that people are buying directly from the maker, um, and th- and that way, the maker is mo- making more money per knife they make. I, I think makers are going to actually rely more on gallerists in the coming years because with so much white noise out there and so many people doing culinary knives and they all kind of it, it, it's kind of like white noise it's hard to tell what is good and what is not and so they're going to need to go to kind of a trusted resource a kind of medium between the makers and the to act as a medium between the makers and um and the buyers to basically help curate what is actually good stuff. Unfortunately, there are great guys out there like Abe Shaw uh, and the folks um, down at Cotillier Nola. And there's like, you know, there's there's lots of these purveyors around the country. And, and fortunately, for the most part, a lot of them are very honest, good people who are trying to, um, I guess, kind of preserve this kind of arts, uh, artfully crafted culinary knives. And, but I think baker makers, if they want to break through, are, are they're, they're going to have to be doing work that's interesting enough and well executed enough that these purveyors are going to be interested in their work to help kind of put them up on these Mount Rushmore's in a way and, and these kind of pedestals to say, sure, there are a lot of great makers out there, but these are the makers who are doing it the best or who are, are doing the most interesting and creative and unique stuff. Um, and so I think while, again, most makers would like to make more money per knife that they make, uh, uh, that they sell, you know, I think there is definitely a kind of a business relationship like you have kind of with Tony in a way, if you look at these purveyors kind of as a business partner in a way, um, that help you to kind of, to, to show that you, or I guess kind of put you in that position in a way, not that they are necessarily king makers, but they, th- somebody has to filter through all of it. And it's going to, co- I think it really honestly is going to come either to makers uh, like ourselves, the three of us um, helping to put other makers on or for purveyors like eating tools and others like them uh, to put makers on to say, you know, these are the people that are doing the best work and where you want to spend your money. Well, we're talking, I'm talking to two of the best culinary knife makers in the game right now. And it's almost like maybe the two of you can't afford to spend, you know, pay someone 30% for, for, for that action. But, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys in the knife game who are not at your level, and I'm going to just give me a second, will, Mm -hmm. um, will not be able to afford to do that. And, you're also putting yourself in this position of selling a selling hamburgers at a hamburger convention. You know, if you don't have any kind of, you know, a personality in terms of your you or your work or your work is recognizable, you're you're hoping that uh, a, a gallerist is going to help you and they might not even I mean you're selling a $500 knife, they might not even be interested. And then you're going to pay 30% and then all of a sudden the bills it's it's sometimes it's it's not that easy. 
No, it's never that easy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's where like I, you you don't necessarily want to jump in feet first or head first, I guess, and go, I'm going to be a knife yeah. maker full time until you have really kind of done that legwork. Like for the first year and a half, like I was still working a side job in a bakery washing dishes and helping prep food and before I went full-time making knives. And it's because yep. I was taking that time to develop that um, kind of brand, I guess, or that kind of, ugh, God, I can't think of the word right now, um, but just like recognition for doing quality work because I was selling through a purveyor. I was selling through Blade Gallery or Epicurean Edge. And enough people started seeing my work there. Enough people started talking about them on the kitchen knife forums and see it elsewhere. And I started building up a strong reputation. And then eventually it snowballed into the point where people started coming to me directly for work. And then, so it's kind of, these purveyors are kind of like a stepping off point. I think, I don't, I, I think some people like it's great. It works great for them to continue to work with them throughout their whole career. There are makers like Bill Burke. He's one of the most talented culinary knife makers in the world. And he still sells work through Epicure through a purveyor. And so because there's always value there, because people are always gonna rely on a purveyor to know what to look for because there's just there's an, an ocean of knives out there. They don't know what is good. But eventually I think that purveyor is is a stepping off point for then people to start coming to you more and more directly. And yes, I know that that discount that the purveyor gets is a kick in the teeth. But again, look at them like a business partner. If they were a full-on business partner, you'd probably be splitting, splitting it actually 50-50 instead of 30%, right? And they're helping to connect you with potential customers. They're helping to make those sales because honestly, like not to knock anybody down, but even myself, like I'm not the greatest salesperson. I'm not the greatest at interacting with people, but these people are, these purveyors are. And so they're kind of in a way providing a service in a way that you were paying them for what they which they are getting compensated for but again they are kind of a, to, in my mind they're a stepping stone to then more people coming directly to you um and that's where email lists come in you know start more as every time somebody comes to you sends you yeah. an email add them to the email list keep adding people to that email list so that when you do make work maybe you offer it to that email list first and then if it doesn't go there boom send it to the purveyor and move on Hey Don, I have an interest. Yeah. Do you know so, Do you know what I would do if I had an ocean of knives? What would you do? I would use an even heat oven to heat treat them. I want to tell you guys. Go to this is some. We gotta hit some of our sponsors on this motherfucker. <laughs> For sure, that's perfect. Even that was heat perfect. Is, is the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. To go find your next oven, go to evenheat-killing.com. Definitely check out the LB series. Uh, definitely try out those tap controls. I've been using even heat. We've all been using even heats for a long time. Even heat are, are, are great sponsors and they're a great company. Also, if you're going to grind a ocean full of knives, you might as well use combat abrasives, CombatAbrasives.com. And if you put in the promo code knife talk 15, you will get 15% off all your belts, abrasives. You got some wheels, you got the compound, whatever you need to get your grinding going. And that ocean of knives ain't going to grind itself. So get yourself one of them. <laughs> combat abrasives belts <laughs> all right back to the program this is going to be different craig we're different than we normally do but that's fine talk i have an interesting train of thought Let's hear uh, based on what marco was talking about so 
with the advent of social media and with the recent changes in social media with like the f all this new stuff and like the short form videos and all that and so many new knife makers i've actually been thinking about like how does one market themselves in this this new this new world now and i've been thinking it's like okay what are the problems i'm facing right now and one of the problems that i'm facing right now is actually it's interesting when i first started making knives i was like why would i ever go to a show and like 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 we, like you said why would i sell burgers at a bur burger show like doesn't make sense except now it's so hard to market yourself and build trust off of social media just through like photos and stuff because mm -hmm. everyone is seemingly making like really good stuff and presenting it really well and consumers just like well who do i fucking buy from and I ran into to this problem where, like, there was, there was actually a good number of people who were, like, they were just like, why would I buy a Don Wynn? He just makes, like, full-tang monosteel blades and sells them for more than most other people. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I was just like, oh, I, people don't know how much work we're putting into these, and they don't know how they feel, they don't know what they look like in person. They don't know how they cut. They don't know what the geometry is like. They're just seeing the photo against other photos of other knives. Right. And now I'm just thinking, like, okay, how do I stand out in general now in the knife world? And I'm almost thinking about going back to knife shows to sell burgers at the burger show just because it's like, okay, now I need, I need to go back to the roots. Like, I need to go back to smaller communities. I need to go back to word of mouth. And a really good way of that is you know, like having people be able to pick up your knife, look at the little details, feel the balance, feel the geometry, all that kind of stuff. And actually word of mouth amongst knife makers has been really powerful for my growth in the past. Like I make a fancy knife and then people talk about it. And that's been huge for my own growth. So that's, those are just some thoughts that I've had recently. Here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy about what you said. One of the crazy parts is the fact that we know how many people are, I'm using the word influence as, as politely as I can, how many people you've influenced in terms of your handle shapes, your knife designs. You have been so influential in people's, their own uh, work that it's shocking to me that, that you would think how, you know, that you, that you feel like you're a wash, I mean, that you're a wash as you use what Mareko is saying in the knife game. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that I hear that from you. Uh, I think I think part of it is just like the time that has gone by since I've started making knives. Like I back then when I started, there weren't a lot of knife makers. And so yeah, I did I did come up with a style that a lot of people got influenced from. But like nowadays it's like it's been so many years since then. A lot of people are doing similar styles and are iterating off of iterations. And so it's like someone new going into it is like, oh, well, Don Wynn is just making another modern style knife just like everyone else. Like, big deal. Does it disappoint you or are you saddened by it? No, it doesn't because I, I just think about what's next. I, I don't really care about like what's mm. been, what I've done in the past or what's has, what's been done in general. Like, it's like okay, like I've, I did come up with that certain style, 
Um, I'm really well known for it, but like, what else do I want to make now? And how do I, how do I make that work? Just a quick aside, Mareko, I, lo I love you. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite. This is my, so far, this is my favorite thing. You hit the cough button and then because of the delay, you, oh, did you it? hear the cough. So oh, like, shit. Yeah. Yeah. So every time you hit second. the button, there's like a good, you got like three oh, seconds. The seconds whole time I've been coughing into the microphone. Yeah. yeah. So every I'm, time you farted now too. Like, oh my yeah, God. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, really, everybody. So no, I don't care. Just, just let you, I mean, I know that you're, you, you are the most conscientious of the cough button. If, if the <laughs> listener could watch every time, I mean, we do an episode, it's, the 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 right side of the scene is Mareko's muted. Mareko's muted. We all know what he's doing. He's I know. I'm looking polite. at it. There's it's like but I just, fifty <laughs> times already. I want you to know. I, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping oh that you I'm, Don's right. I hope you fart. I hope you fart. So you might want to like give it like three seconds because you're three seconds behind. Yeah, okay. There you go, out of boy. Okay. So you were saying, Don, before I interrupted you. I have no idea what I was saying. Well, I, you're an if, old dog. The oh, no, what do you thing is. What what he was saying? He's an old. He's oh oh yeah. You, you oh know, yeah. You, you were giving him some love earlier for being such a young guy, but he's been doing this since 2011, 2012, and 2010. Was 2010. Oh man, oh, even yeah. farther. So yeah, he's he's young. Times have changed. He's, he's a veteran in this game. But do you, does this mean that you 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 how are you looking at social media? Because I know that that's that was the first thing you came across is like the fact that it, it is true. If you look at the way Instagram is, they change the rules every fucking five minutes, which is the which is annoying. And mm -hmm. you can't like you get like I I actually what you're saying. I've been the past six months. I've been trying different styles of you know promotion for me by doing mm -hmm. telling more st in the past two months i've been doing more storytelling in regards to why i'm different from the other guys and where things come from and i'm trying to do short form video to say these are the i'm not just knocking somebody off these are yeah. the, my decisions and this is decision came from this and i'm starting to get a lot more engagement from people because they're seeing me tell my story and where things come from, as opposed to, I just watched this YouTube video. Now I'm doing harpoon clips. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so, it, so what's interesting is, is how you, what are you thinking about? So I know you do. That's what, what Mareko said in the beginning is, is true. Your self-deprecating humor, which I am all in on. I am all, <laughs> there, there is nothing better than making fun of yourself. There's nothing better. And, yeah. and, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is one of your recent YouTube videos. You did a lot of cutting videos, cutting tests, yeah. and you actually did. You were using a. a, a uh, I'm going to use. I don't know if it's a Chinese cleaver, but it was a very thin cleaver. And yeah, it was a Chinese cleaver. It was a Chinese. Or at least cleaver. my my rendition of it. Yeah, your rendition of a Chinese cleaver. And in the beginning, you started taking. You wanted to see uh, see the cutting performance of it and 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 the the food release for so for lack of a better term. And you started cutting, and then it started. It was like a suction cup. It was like yeah. you couldn't even shake it off. And then there was like this look on your face, like great. And then you went back, and then a few <laughs> hours later, you fixed the geometry, and then. Do you do you find that people because your work is very serious? I mean, when you if yeah. you weren't if people didn't see you actually struggling, they would think that you're like you know you're a curator of like fine art. Like your knives are like they're they're terrifyingly perfect. Thank you. Oh, how do I see it? I don't know. Social media in general. Um, 
I think the tactics change, but the strategy stays the same for me. And what I mean by that is, at least, at least for my take, I, I try to catch attention really quick, no matter what the form is. So like when it was five years ago, it was just standard like photos and, you know, like your, uh, I don't know what they call it, the collages where you got multiple, multiple photos in a post. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still the same. You try to catch the attention from somebody who's scrolling and you have so many milliseconds to do that. And then what's next? Like once you do catch your attention, hopefully, what do you do next? And for me, it's to try to build trust. And it's that to me is the most important part. And sometimes it is slow because I don't know what I'm doing. And sometimes it works really well. And I'm I'm always a advocate of slow growth because the the more you build trust with people, the more they'll they'll tend to talk about your work and the more they'll actually like support you and why you do your your work not just like what you do um so like that video for example it caught people's attention because i had an ego going in i was like oh i spent a lot of time grinding this thing i've spent a lot of time working on geometries in general like i feel like this should cut like a motherfucker so (laughs) i go in i'm like i got a fucking like convex double hollow shit on this thing like it's gotta cut well and I do that first cut, and you could visibly see me gulping. I'm like, oh, fuck. And the camera's on. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I've caught your attention now because it cuts like a piece of shit. Now what? So the, the, the part where I build the trust is like, okay, I should know what I'm doing, right? Like, how do I fix this thing? And hopefully <laughs> I get that on camera. And thankfully I do. Like, I end up fixing it. I, I shift some of the geometry around. I... I pushed like the hollow part lower and introduce convexity earlier in the grind. That's that's essentially what I'm doing, and it works. So that validates, like, I guess my skills. It validates my experience. I I'm able to take a knife that doesn't cut very well. I'm able to like make it cut well. And actually, going back a little bit further, it it validates that I know what I want and what I'm looking for in a knife and how it cuts. So that's part of the trust building there. And that's my that's my strategy in social media in general. Like that's what I do from a YouTube video is also is like I try to build trust. I try to make potential customers see what I'm doing and like and they just be like, Oh, okay. I see I see that he has skills and I see what he's trying to achieve for in the knives that he makes. So could you just back it up just a hair in regards to cause that video I was just watching that video before you came on and I and I was noticing you know, the great part is, is like, you're like, you know, you're clearly disappointed. And then there's this little cut that says a few hours later, what yeah. did you do? What did you do to that knife to make it sail through that potato? Okay. So that knife has an S grind, essentially. It's got two S grinds in it, but it's so tall that I feel like that's just like a gimmick that I threw in there, but it, I don't feel like it needs it. It <laughs> has an S grind. Wait a second. When you say two S grinds. I was always under the impression if you say the S grind, that's both sides. Is that not the case? It's both sides. What I mean by double S is basically just double hollow grind. Like there's a hollow stacked on top of a hollow grind. Okay, so two hollow grinds, one on top of the other. Yeah. Okay. I don't think you need that. It, it's So my knife philosophy, to get a good cut, um, we could talk about what a good cut in general is. But like to... <laughs> so... When I'm evaluating how a knife cuts, it needs to actually 
go through the food without wedging. And what I mean by wedging is like, does it crack the potato in half? Does it crack the carrot in half? Do you hear it like ripping the cells apart? If it does to a great degree, then that need, that means it needs to be more thin. Um, more thin where? That's the big question. But you can kind of hear and you can kind of feel like where you're hitting resistance. This knife did not have any wedging, so I knew it was thin enough. But it was sticking. And it was sticking pretty much every single point. Like it was sticking low, it was sticking high. Mm. It was kind of a disaster. It wasn't steering, which is good. Steering is when you... When you start initiating the cut and you follow through, like does it start drifting to the left or drifting to the right? Steering, it can be a problem if it's too much. Um, and usually the causes of steering is like you have too much material on one side versus the other. And you can get steering lower in the geometry or you can get steering higher in the geometry. So that's another thing to look out for. Food release or sticking is... It's straightforward. Like you cut something and it, the food sticks to the knife. Um, on this one, basically, I have a slight convex area, like maybe half an inch off of the edge right there. That's when it starts blending into the hollow grind. I thought that with the hollow grind and the convexity, it would just pop the potato right off, but it didn't. And I was, I was feeling for where it was sticking, and it was sticking basically all the way from the tip to the heel, basically from the edge up middle to the blade. Like, it was sticking everywhere. Um, what that tells me is there's too much flat real estate on the, the grind. And most of it was towards the edge. So I had too much flat material, like, pretty much from the edge all the way half an inch up the blade. And I needed to introduce a greater change in the angle relative to the rate of like going from the edge of the spine. That's how I look at knives in terms of like the geometry and how they perform. And so this knife, I saw that it was sticking. It was sticking really close to the edge, like hugging it to the edge basically. So I was like, okay, I need to have a greater angle change earlier in the geometry. So I push the hollow grind lower by about, I don't know, a quarter of an inch. And then I blended it a little bit more. And that fixed it. That completely changed how the knife cut. What do you think, Mareko? Uh, yeah, no, I think I think. Um, yeah, I was actually also looking at Don's Instagram just before we got on here too, um, and in other posts talk about you know, do you need an S grind or or not and stuff like that. And um, I, I think when it comes to edge geometry, for me, it's all about. The, how the knife actually passes through the food. Um, and if there's resistance or like what Don was saying, is, is there wedging? Um, so incomplete cutting, like when you're cutting through carrots and st apples and stuff like that. Um, when it comes to adjusting geometries, it's tricky. Um, and I, I think I've, I've found that like the... <sighs> It's too many people prescribe to the idea that an S grind is the end all be all, and that's really definitely not true. Um, Don actually is a perfect example of creating great cut geometry with food release without even having an S grind. Don, uh, or not Don, but <laughs> Dan Bittinger also does uh, great work with his um, convex grinds, and I, I think 
Um, I don't know. I think too many people, and I, I, I don't know if it's a symptom of the forums or just humans in general who are very like tribalistic in the way that they're like, S grinds everything or convex grinds everything, like whatever. This is like, I think for makers, it's important to have uh, a good arsenal of techniques and skills so that based on what somebody wants, you can deliver that to them. Or based on what you're shooting for, like what Don's doing with this Chinese vegetable cleaver, you can make adjustments. Um, honestly, like, like after seeing that, I actually, I don't think, he, I, I, I didn't, I don't know if I watched the whole post um, or, or if he doesn't mention in there, but my first thought is like, oh, maybe he pulled the edge back just like a millimeter and then convex, like beefed up the convexity of the knife um, to get the, to get the food release he was looking for. Um, and it's, I think, I think for any maker, really the key is to have kind of like some versatility uh, in your tool role of skills and techniques to be able to make these adjustments based on what you're trying to accomplish. What's, what's funny is and interesting is I wanted to bash all these compound grinds and all these grinds only for the sake of the fact that exactly what you said, Mareko, is it the forums? Is it, are we tribalistic? I hear, I get messages from dudes who I know can't cook. I know they can't. I mean, they cannot. <laughs> There's a guy and and my my man. My, 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 there is a boy. There's a boy. My boy. Uh, my boy Ben Camon knows exactly who I'm talking about. There's a guy out there who is, he boy can't cook. I mean, he cannot cook. Mm. And he, he's saying to me, he's like, "Well, I only use S grinds." And I'm part of. He's just like, "Bro, <laughs> you you. I mean, come, dude, S grind ain't gonna make that. Whatever you're making taste better. It's just not gonna happen." Right. And what's interesting is is there we we also. And I, I wanted to kill him. I wanted to kill it all. And then recently, <laughs> but only, not him. I want to kill the whole, you know, because what happens is, is like, you know, we talk about guys who are influenced and you hear other knife makers talk about their grinds and I make an S grind. I make it. And meanwhile, they could, couldn't cut the crust off a sandwich, you know. And what I end, what end up, what, what I realized was you did it. <laughs> Mareko, you're the best. I swear to God, you're the best. <laughs> Am I still missing it? The button. I used to, oh, by a mile. But it's great. Oh. I, I'm not going to tell you ever again. I'm not going to tell you again, but it is. I love it. I, it makes me happy because it, it would. If you figured it out, then it's no good. This is the bit. So what I realized was is one Sorry, of the things everybody. that uh, one one of the things that Craig says a lot is there's only so much you can do with a sharp and pointy thing. And I, with peace and love and nothing but respect for my friend who I who I adore, I feel like that's a cop out. And it's as if you say you can't just say you can't. I can't t say to him. Oh, guess I guess that means all the songs have been written. Like all, no point mm. in writing another song because the song hadn't been written. And I started thinking about that, and I started to realize now you have a way for knife makers to to be a little bit more artistic in their decisions. And when you look at guys like Salem Straub, who has taken the S grind. And he has made it a part of the night. It's a part of the design decision. If you look at the way he used the S grind, he'll forge weld on uh, bars that just that that connect to the S grind. So you can actually see the border of the S grind with the forge welded on uh, mosaic Damascus bars. You have an opportunity to use it for your ability to make something a little bit different. And and so I've decided I, I'm not going to kill all these compound grinds anymore because it does it gives you a way to have your own style that makes sense yeah i'm with you there all right you know what i was you know what i would do if i was uh gonna grind some s grinds 
I would use a Broadbeck Ironworks 2x72. If you go to broadbeckironworks.com and put in the promo code KNIFETALK10, you get 10% off all of your grinders and grinder attachments and packages. So definitely go check out the boys over at Broadbeck. Um, they are also, uh, in, seems like they're in the, in the business of making power hammers. I think that's coming soon. So check out what they got going on. Besides the fact that they have a sharpening systems, besides they have the fact that they have leather sewing machines, and I believe that they're a distributor of even heat as well, go check out what's going on over at broadbreakironworks.com. Put in the promo code KNIFETALK10 for 10% off. I think I saw somebody you post about ta- them having a uh, misting system too, which I didn't know about. Misting systems. Mist, keep your mister. You got it, mister. Don't get you 10% <laughs> off, mister. So, Don, is there, talk, talk to us about, can you explain, when you say convexity, can you explain what that is? Can you explain what you're looking for in the convexity and how you achieve it? Oh, man. You got a fucking hour. Come on, man. You got this. Huh. Okay. Um... I'm basically looking for like a nice gentle curve. If you're looking at the cross section of the knife, I want to see a nice gentle curve so that it you have less of just like big flat sections that can just stick to food. You you have to have some flat sections. Like you don't want your convexity running all the way to the edge because then you have the chance of like the knife really wedging early on. Or if it doesn't, once you start thinning it, then your edge gets exponentially thicker much quicker. Um, so there's a balance. You have to have your edge to be as thin as possible and your, the area directly behind the edge be thin. But then past that, you have to have convexity such that it's changing the surface so that there's less flat sections. And it's changing it fast enough so that the food can pop off and not actually stick to the blade. I don't know how else to describe it. I have a tough um, question for you, Don. Yeah. Is it food or is it just potatoes? Food. Okay. So, okay. All right. Good for you. Good. And, and sticking to it. Because I once talked to Fingal Ferguson and we were calling it the potato grind because it's like, it seems as though, <laughs> I mean, you cut a mushroom, <laughs> the mushrooms aren't sticking to the, the mushrooms aren't sticking to the knife. Yeah, well, okay, here's another thing. It's like, people chase the the food release to, like, the extremes, and I'm not that person, because I know I'm not just cutting potatoes all day long, or I'm not just cutting one thing. Like, if you make it so that it releases certain items really well, you're going to run into, like, a squash or, like, a tall zucchini or something, and it's going to stick like a motherfucker. Almost, like, no, ma- no matter what you do, like, something's going to stick to it. And if you try to get everything to pop off, then you're compromising on something else. That's that's my hot take. Um, not, that, not that hot of a take. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Either way, uh, I try to balance it all. I try to balance the thin edge. I try to balance the long-term maintenance and longevity of the edge so that it doesn't get too thick too fast when you're thinning it. I try to balance the food release a little bit, and I try to balance like the weight and the feel because... I see really often people going really crazy with like their experimental grinds to make food pop off. And I'm, I'm here for it to an extent. Um, but I see sometimes like the rinds getting so thin that they meet up in the center and then you have a hole in the, 
the middle of the, the blade and i'm just like well one you've got a hole but two like even if you didn't meet in the middle like your blades can be so thin and so light and to me it's like i have to have some heft in the blade at least that's my preference I don't know what I'm talking about anymore right now. Don't worry, what about, are we... that. Don't worry about that. One <laughs> of the things that Mareko's pointed out that I love is that I, th- I feel as though over the years, Mareko, you're almost slowly kind of like, not evolving, but you're taking the step for the concept of S-grinds. And it's not about food release, but it's about taking the friction out of the cut. And yeah, reducing the cut weight. friction. Right. You want to talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, so it's... For me, the, the the greatest benefit of the S-grind is reducing the surface interaction with whatever food it's cutting, especially taller foods like potatoes. But also it could be, you know, through steaks or through watermelons or tomatoes even. Whatever you can do to reduce that surface engagement, you're also going to reduce the, the amount of force that's ne- needed to push that knife through um the food now if you have a gnarly edge that's super thick that s grind is not really going to benefit you well it has to couple well with good geometry um and again like it, it's it's it can be also a stylistic choice you know if you have like a really big blade and maybe you want to take some of the weight out of it and s grind could be a way to help with accomplishing that but i again i too many people and I don't know. I don't think I was the first to do the S grinds. I think uh, there was a maker named, and Don might be able to jump in and help with this, but I think Marco Sorkin, uh, who was based out of New York, and I think also Robin Dalman out of Sweden were some of the first um, people doing S grinds in the kitchen knife forums that were um, really getting attention for it, at least in the, in the kitchen knife forums. And, and from there it, it's been um, myself and, and, uh, uh, our, our friend Don's and my friend, uh, or, or all of our, friends, yeah, whatever. Anyways, Ian Rogers does really great S grinds. Uh, <laughs> and then it was actually at the Eugene show that Don, uh, that, um, Salem started seeing the S grinds and he started doing S grinds and then it's become kind of a thing. And a lot of people, again, unfortunately like to think that it's the end all be all, but it's again, I, I, me personally, it's not about food release. It's about ease. uh, What is it? The cut, making the cut that much more easy for whatever you're cutting through. You know, if you're cutting chives, it doesn't actually really matter what knife you're using. (laughs) It's going to, it's the food release isn't going to be there. Um, But, you know, for taller food, most people are cutting through taller things. It helps to reduce that surface engagement, which makes it easier to cut the food. Uh, So for me, my top performing uh, performance indicators is like, how easy is it for the knife to cut through the food and how well does it hold an edge? Those are coming from kind of a more production background in cooking and working in restaurants and prepping where you're just blasting through onions, potatoes, tomatoes, all kinds of foods to get them prepped up onto the line so that the kitchen's ready to go. It's about how quickly you can do that. And if you have to fight the tool to get the job done, that's not one, it's not very enjoyable, but two, you're slow. It's slowing you down. You're being, it's an, it's an inefficiency. So by reducing that surface engagement, it makes it easier and less fatigue, honestly, on the maker themselves. Um, so I guess that's kind of my take on to S grind or not to S grind. Two points. And one of them is going to be a hot take. The second one's going to be a hot take. And I want you guys to address it. 
Okay. Number one is the the best example of food release are slicing knives. And the reason why that you don't see a sushi knife, a sushi guy using a two a knife with a two inch heel is because that what happens is, is when you're cutting, especially with like a thin slicer, the that you're when the when you're dr- dragging and pulling it through the fish you're not you're not molesting or mushing the fish you're not changing it up you're gliding through and you have to have some type of food release like a thinner blade so you're not tearing up the meat or pulling it if you've ever seen uh if you ever try to cut through so like perfect example try to cut through a loaf of bread with a chef knife sometimes you mush it up you know you're not you're mushing <laughs> it up and then that that thinner slicer is what's going to give you less food release and the friction isn't going to mush that food, mush the, the fish up and stuff. Here's the hot take. The hot take is, and you guys say if I'm right or wrong, are makers putting in S-grinds to justify the price of their knives? Or or not just S-grinds, <laughs> complex grinds. Are they putting it in to justify the price of their knives? Do you want to take it, Don? <laughs> Go ahead, laugh. Um, Go ahead, laugh it up. We're in a safe um, space here. I'm just, I'm just shooting some not, <laughs> shots across the bout, I'm, but I'm being I'm contemplating on it right now. Okay, okay. I, mm. I can start. Mm. Um, let Don think. I think some people do for sure. I think it's, it's, you know, it has become kind of a a buzz term or buzz i guess feature that people are really excited about and if it doesn't have the s grind kind of going back to the the s grind quote unquote being the end all be all for some people they think that that's a really important thing to have in there but again um it, it it's not necessarily for to to have that to create a high performance culinary knife um but i think i i i would be amazed if there weren't some people who are relying on the fact that they've done some sort of S grind, um, no matter how well or not as well it's been executed for that to help, sorry, to help with being able to sell that work. Um, yeah. Don, but I have, I have more notes on how the sushi cuts and I think it's more about technique, but I'll let Don take it over about the S grind. I think, I think it's a bit of both. I think some people definitely do take advantage of it to, to mark up their prices. Um, but I think a big part of it is like the spec sheet sells. Like mm. the more you can throw onto the the sheet with you know the well the bells and whistles and stuff like that, the more it's going to sell. Like in general, like if you if you come up with a blade with an S grind that's like milled with you know all this bells and whistles and it's got copper in the alloy and and it's something crazy you know like some crazy alloy with like all the new fancy carbides and uh i don't know like the more you can fit onto the spec sheet the the easier it is to market um and i think grind is definitely something that you can advertise in that way for sure. Before we get on to, I wanted to hear. I want. I want Mareko's notes on sushi. I want to talk to you about what looks really good with an S grind. You know what that is? Damasteel. Go to damasteel.se <laughs> and use the promo code Knife Talk Ten to get some of the best stainless pattern welded steels around. The Damasteel is great. They're selling trousers, and apparently we're we're we might be getting some Carly. 
I, 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 I don't know what to tell you, but I'm looking forward to a pair of trousers from Dam of Steel. But I'm telling you what. Go check out Damn Steel. You get yourself 10% off with the promo code Knife Talk. Dazzle your friend, friends. Don't be intimidated by it. It is not hard to work with. Uh, their YouTube channel and their customer service is far uh, more than enough to get you squared away. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be doing the Damn Steel Invitational this year. And you're going to do the Knife Talk build, uh, the Damn Steel build along, which I think they're out of material, but it'll be fun anyway. So we're looking forward to that. Thank you, Damn Steel. Mareko, tell me more about this. Make me wrong. Make me wrong. <laughs> no, I don't think it's about making you wrong. And and Don can actually wrong. follow because Don did this great build along for I don't know how many episodes following his uh, the the odyssey of building a, a quality um, sashimi knife. Um, but it's more about the cutting technique. And if you get in close and you watch how the sushi chef is making the cut the when the last little bit of meat that's at the bottom that's being cut very little of the knife is actually engaged with the meat it's just like the last little tip um and you can do this with any kind of on it like a lot of knives to do a cut you do most of the cut like pushing down and pushing forward and then you drag the knife through and with the just the tip of the knife making that last cutting that last little bit of connective flesh um most of the food is actually going to stick back to itself um while that last little bit of the knife is making the cut and you can kind of create the illusion or the effect of food release uh or really more than anything keeping the food from sticking to the knife by doing that um or the food will fall off the blade but that's because less of the knife is actually engaged with the blade um but i think that's typically uh oh sorry go ahead go i was gonna say but the reason why slicing knives like people who slice smoked salmon for a living or you getting slicing knives slicing knives are Mm -hmm. generally on the uh from the edge to the to the spine it's very narrow because you have less knife engaging with the, the 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 with the meat well, and that's the same no, idea. With, it's the same idea with the S grind. Is that less? So right. I could have a two and a quarter inch tall knife, but if that S, that the hollow of the S grind starts only half an inch above the the edge, then effectively I'm only cutting with a half inch tall knife. Ideally, especially when I'm cutting through firmer fa- food. But it's slapping down on the side, and it's going to mush. That's the mushing part. The mushing is going to be like it's going to be. You're not going to. You're. It's sticking to the top after you've cut it. It, it can if it hasn't already started to fall off. Yeah, and nothing's put. No S grind's perfect. What, what not every like Don said earlier. Not not no S grind is gonna have nothing stick to it. That's just not realistic. Yeah, of course. Yeah. What do you think, Don? I'm with you guys. I, I kind of agree <laughs> with all of that. Like, it's all about surface area. The shorter knife is gonna have have less of it. S grinds do. A similar idea where you reduce the surface area and then uh, going back to like a nice convex grind, like it's the same idea. You're introducing a change in angle, change in geometry, and that's really there just to reduce the surface area. So like, I don't think it really matters like what kind of grind you do, but the fundamentals still translate to all of them. Don, we need to do a class of blade show next year. Oh shit, that'd be nice. You should do a class. The guys at Blade Show, they listen to this show. They don't listen to the show. They should listen to the show. Listen, guys. 
don't think they listen to the show. They should listen to the show. Guys, here's the here's the question. Is there a difference in, or am I crazy? I'm asking a question. A belt finish versus satin finish, would that help with your food release? Does it make a difference? And don't answer it once at the same time. <laughs> I, I, I will say I, <laughs> I've had... I mean, gr- Jesus Christ. <laughs> Craig, at one hour and two minutes and 40 seconds, there's a big gap of dead air. You got to edit out. Um, (laughs) uh, I'll say I've noticed I've I've gotten great food release with machine finish versus if honestly, it's just like the scratch is going one way or the other. And I I haven't noticed myself personally um, them influencing the way the knife performs. But I. I could be wrong. I don't think I have either. Like, I'm sure it makes a minute difference, but like, the the cross sectional geometry is what really matters more. Like, sure, maybe if you have like, like a mirror finish, it might affect it just a touch more. But I don't think it should be affecting it like that much. Like, if it does, then I don't know. Maybe your fundamentals do work. It's pronounced mirror. I- it's it is, it is I, you know what I that's a good memory mirror I worked with we I was my last metal shop I worked with these guys from uh, Ecuador and Colombia and we would have to do mirror finish on bronze all the time and he and when we'd have to do a mirror finish we said right, he's like oh no we have to do mirror so we called it mirror that was that's the story but you know what I would use if I had to make a mirror finish I would use Rhinoet from Adasi USA Rhinoet's the best sandpaper around and if you no one says anything any different nobody says this stuff is not good this stuff is amazing go get yourself some of that Adasi USA Rhinoet get some of the red line over it in Dasi and over at Texas Ferry Supply and it, well, among other things you can get you can get all sorts of uh equipment you can get all sorts of knife stuff you can get all sorts of handle materials they got all sorts of abrasives and all whatever you need to get started or resupplied go get yourselves over to the texas ferry supply put in the promo code knife talk 10 for 10 percent off get yourself some of that red line at least get some 220 and uh there you go i'm with you well should we do you want to hit a couple questions Mareko? or, yeah, let's or do it. don is there anything you want to cover or anything you want to talk about uh, how's business for you guys been? <sighs> how's business for us? Good question. Mareko, how's business for you? Uh, business is good. Um, I actually have a couple knives getting ready to go out to a newsletter and newsletter has been a big deal for me. And actually Don, you and, uh, other makers, uh, have been influenced for me to get on the whole newsletter kick, uh, for sure. Um, I've been doing a lot more teaching. Uh, I have actually, I have a class coming up. I'm going to be teaching, um, kind of it's the, the idea is that you're decoding mosaic Damascus. So basically it's like bringing people into a classroom setting. Uh, it's going to be basically all theory. There's going to be a little bit of handwork using clay, but there isn't really any, uh, it's not really a traditional make and take. You're not going to be forging any steel or any blades or anything. Uh, what you're taking with you is knowledge and skill, um, or I guess knowledge and theory and understanding, I guess. Um, so I'm teaching one class, uh, September. I said last week it was the 22nd and 24th, but we actually had to move the dates to September, um, 
to September, sorry, I'm just looking at the calendar right now, 29th to October 1st, uh, which is just before Maker Camp. I got Maker Camp from the 5th to the 9th after that. And then I'm going to be teaching that same decoding class over on the East Coast. Uh, so the first class is going to be here on the West Coast in Washington State, and the second class is going to be over on the East Coast at Zach Jonas's shop. Uh, October 13th to the 15th. And if you need more info, email me for my class or Zach for his class, Zach at JonasBlade.com. Um, and, and that's really like teaching more has been something I've been trying to do, uh, trying to, trying to do to mix things up a little bit because I definitely have gotten a bit burned out on making the same knife over and over again for the last 10 plus mm. years. And so I've been trying to, figure out how to keep that interesting while not, I don't know, just completely feeling burned out and wanting to quit all the time. So I've been doing teaching stuff. I've been uh, integrating some sort of uh, like experimental work for me personally, um, just like with Damascus patterns as well as just yes. making different styles of knives. Go ahead. Do you still enjoy the knife making? I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot more now. Um, honestly, last year was okay, but the few year for a few years before, um, I was really struggling from like 2018 or 19 to like 2021 um, because it's, it, I don't know. It was just, I was just really struggling and everything was like on me. Um, whereas, you know, like in my household, um, I'm the sole breadwinner currently. My wife definitely helps with the business that helps, you know, to keep things rolling, but there's a lot of pressure on me because if I'm not making the knives, then money's not coming in. Right. And so that and struggling with yeah. custom orders and delays in custom orders, which means delays in paydays and, but the bills don't wait for paydays, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, I was really struggling with yeah. wrapping my head around all of that and made some big changes in the last, um, yeah, I think it was about a year and a half ago or so. And I think I've talked to you about that. Uh, and I've talked about it on the, on the podcast a bit too. Um, but that's been a, a, a change for the better for me personally. And, um, yeah. And so part of that has been mixing it up so that the income isn't solely based off custom work. It's, it's also based off a, a kind of a variety of resources, the Patreon teaching classes. Um, yeah. And it's been, it's been really helpful yeah. to kind of keep a positive mindset about things. Cause, uh, yeah, it definitely gets to a point, especially when there's so much stress built that builds up that, um, I get very um, negative in my own head, for sure. I empathize. Yeah. How's business been for you, Don? Business has been good lately, but it has been tricky the past couple of years because of COVID, because of the economy, because of the the changes in like we talked about the market and social media and stuff like that, and that's the impetus with the design series stuff that I was mentioning before. Like it took a long time to, to actually get that going. People would, people would look in and be like, well, why is it so hard? You just got to make simpler knives, but just more of them. Well, it's not, it's not so simple like that. Like I'm working with someone else. Like I got to get them up to speed to like what we're doing. And we're doing a lot of R and D to make sure that it's like, I want really good fit and finish and good geometry in these things. Like, I don't want to just half-ass 10 knives and call them, 
oh, this is our small batch series. They're more affordable now. Like, I want to make these, like, really good. And that takes a lot of experimenting. Like, it's, it's different. But things are okay. I think, I think we're past the worst of it. And I feel like if I have survived the past couple of years in that shithole, like, now I feel like I can tackle pretty much anything. It's the hardest part is is figuring out what you're the hardest part is is to just not accept the high highs and the low lows. You know, and the like right now for us right now, we and I talk to other people who are in similar situations and we're experiment we're experiencing almost like the same high months and low months. It's kind of weird. Like I, one example is last August was like outstanding. I mean, like Christmas time outstanding. Like it was crazy. And I was hearing that from other people too. And then I also hear about like, you know, May wasn't terrific and June was good. And then July is weird. And, you know, you have these moments of like, well, how do you handle them? You know, like you could have a great August, great September, great October, November. And then January comes around and like, how do you kind of like, you know, rationalize it all. And and it's what I try to do is I, and a lot of it's because I feel like as I've gotten older, it's, I'm far more, I'm trying not to micromanage the day-to-day business and to the point where I'm in a panic because things turn around and you, I'm, you know, constantly, we, one of the great things that this past year is we got, we, we finished our custom orders. Like our custom order list at one point was up to a hundred knives and we oh. just, Oh, it was, it was, you know what? It's not as bad as you think, as long as you don't dwell on it. The hardest part is not dwelling on things. And we coughed it up. I mean, I've been making knives now. We were talking, I was talking to Tony. We've been making knives for like nine years or something like that. Eight or nine years. And we've always had custom orders. And part of it is like, he used to say to me, he used to say to me, just don't think about it. Just don't think about it. They're going to, people wait. Don't worry about it. And the part of it was how important it was to be able to make my own stuff and have stuff in stock. You don't want people going to your website and everything's just sold out. You know, it sucks. So after January, we knocked everything off. We got a few custom orders, you know, that we're finishing up now, but nothing is, I mean, we, it's, we're able to make stuff and have it on stock. So when people go to the website, we get this casual sales, which is great. All of a sudden you wake up one morning and you'll get a message that we've sold, you know, three knives out of nowhere, you know, and, and it's, click and buy and then we sharpen them and then ship them and that's been really great except for the fact that when you have the custom orders it's like uh it's it there's this there's the safety net of the fact that the money was you already got the money you know and, and you already you know you you have a little bit of a cushion for a little bit and how do you deal with her are we gonna steal from peter to pay paul and what are we gonna do and <laughs> There's a lot of like having, well, that's what it is. I mean, you know, that's why a lot of knife makers poo-poo taking money. Well, there's a ton of, that was one of the things that surprised me the most from the custom knife bit game was knife makers saying you never take money up front. That's bullshit. But like there are other, you know, if you're a sculptor and you have to lay out money for for a project or a commission, you take a deposit. Every business takes a deposit. If you get a- No, it's interesting. It's like, my my girlfriend is uh, in manufacturing and engineering and stuff like that. And she, when I was talking about my customs and how everyone was like, oh, don't take the money. She's like, what? Like every fucking industry requires you to take money up front. Like that's how the mm-hmm. business works. Yeah. It's just interesting that knives are 
well, somehow but, opposite. But that there, there's a certain there's a certain type of maker who who feels that and that, that's their move. I mean, there's a degree of like I don't know if it's like I don't know what it is. I mean, that's their opinion, and fine. You can if you could look at there was an article in Blade magazine. They were talking about how to get into business, and they were saying don't take don't take deposits. It was all about like the you know the traditional ways. You don't take deposits, and they pay you when it's finished. And well, some of you gotta you know you take a, you gotta have a, a list of hundred people, and they have no one's paid a nickel, and you gotta buy all this shit. You know, it's like it's you gotta get the money somewhere. As long as you're not a flea bag and walk with the money. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the risk associated with that money? Because like let's say you got all the materials now, you have your you have the money from those custom orders and then something happens. Like, I mean, knife making is a fragile business. Like somebody gets sick or something happens or, you know, like you get setbacks and maybe the setback is a little bit more dire than you'd like. That's, that's the cost of doing business. Yeah. For some reason, knife makers think we're on our own island of business. Like we're, we're, we're <laughs> that we're on this we're on this completely deserted island that it doesn't. Our business is just different from what everybody else does. The expression of that's the cost of doing business means sometimes it's not all perfect. Like I had an example, and I've talked about this on the podcast. Is I had a, the, I'm having nothing but problems with shipping internationally to the point where I'm on the verge of just saying. I'm not shipping internationally anymore. Customs has become a real problem to the point where I sent some knives in the mail in February and then they somehow came back to me in uh, May and then I sent an email to the customer and the customer decided he didn't want to pay the customs and he sent them back. So I had to refund him $1,700. And it was like, I don't want any, what am I going to do? I got the money. I mean, people, somebody told me, you should just kept the money and kept the knives. That's some flea bag shit. Can't do yeah. that. That's some bullshit. I, I gotta sleep. I gotta sleep at night, you know. But that's the cost of doing business. We had enough money. We we're, we're working hard enough that we can. We had the money to do it, and we send the money back. And it and we. It's not fish. It's not gonna go bad, you know. How do you deal with those kinds of issues? I mean, it seems uh... like. Oh. Go ahead, Morocco. Go ahead, Morocco. <laughs> <Okay. Go ahead. laughs> I was gonna say it seems like. Uh... The biggest issue is kind of like a cash flow issue, which a lot of businesses deal with, but they usually have some sort of larger account that they can help with that kind of potential cash flow issue if it comes up. Um, or if they need that cash flow to buy more inventory, whether it's more steel or if it's more material like consumables or whatever. Um, and so, um, but I think the the issue is a lot of makers are not working with that kind of extra cash flow as a business. And so I think that's part of the reason people don't like to take the money up front is because they're honestly, they're really not running their knife making as an actual business. Like the, it's technically, they have a business license and all this stuff, but the structure of the company is not like a business. Um, I agree. And I, and I think that is the bigger issue. Don, what do you think? I I'm a I agree with that. I think a lot of knife makers don't run their business as like an actual business. Um, for customs, I've done less and less of them lately, just because of the workflow problem, not really like the the money problem. Um, that helps a bit with the money because now I don't have to like sit with like a huge amount of orders. I'm only doing like five at a time. 
So that that definitely helps. And then when I do take a custom, I I take a percentage up front, and then I take a percentage when it's hit a certain checkpoint, and then the rest when it's done. But yeah, that's a lot of accounting. Yeah, I I, I don't really know like the ideal answer for me. We had to because came to the point in the beginning and my business partner was so busy with other things we would take a deposit and then closer to the end we would have to fish out the money we'd have to like chase people down and it was mm. too much work it was too much organizing of you know i would say i say a message tony did this guy pay oh i don't know let me check or did this guy pay oh, i sent him an email yesterday it, it was too much work it was too much work for too much me talking to Tony and having to go back and forth. We had one time, I'll tell you the the biggest waste of time I've had in the shop was a guy wanted an oyster knife and he wanted some information. We sent him all the information, everything you could say. We sent him emails. Here's what they are. Here's what we have to offer. Didn't hear from him again. We don't have, we can't, we don't have the time to hunt people down. You know, if they don't respond, we don't call them up and say, you know, just for an oyster knife, especially, you know, we don't want to send them a message saying, I didn't hear from you. Would you still want this oyster knife? It's like, yeah, I got to keep the ball rolling here. You know, if you want it, you know, you, we gave you the information, the ball's in your court. Happens all the time. Months passed, never hear from him again. Didn't even think about him, forgot about him. I posted something on Inst on Facebook and he happened to be following me or something or knew me. I then wrote, boy, that's something else that you post other people's work before or post your own stuff before you finish other people's work. So he made it seem as though he had made it seem as though I took his money and I haven't worked on his project. Well, he puts I, I, Nick Rossi saw it. All, all these hot shots, Salem Stropsies, Nick Wheeler, all these guys that I'm friends with are just seeing the fucking faders of Fleabag. I tore the shop. This is when we, everything was in files. I'm tearing the files cabinet up, all the paper files. I'm calling Tony. Tony's tearing up his emails. We're tearing up the emails. He never responded back. So I sent him, <laughs> so, I, so, so I wrote to him on Facebook saying, I sent you a DM, you know, let's talk this over, thinking, thinking that maybe I, whatever. So the guy says, oh, well, you know, we, I said, did I, did I, did you pay for a knife that I never made? And he goes, oh, no, I just, you didn't respond to my emails. And I said, I sent you, you, turns out that our emails went to his junk folder. And he started to, I said, I said, you can't, I said, you're writing it down as if you gave me money and I just ignored the order. It's not the case. Go, oh, well, I'll take it down. He's like, well, why don't you send me an email now so I can see if I'm getting your emails or it's going to my junk folder. And I was, and I said, dude, I have tore my shop apart. My business partner, we stopped everything for a $150 knife. We spent too much time. And I said, I'm, I said, if you want the knife, here's the link. You can buy the knife. And he goes, well, I want more information. And I said, I cannot do this anymore. <laughs> I cannot do this. And I said, I can't. This is too much. I said, this is too much work for an oyster knife. And he goes, well, that's the way you're going to treat your customers. And I wrote back to him. I'm like, but you're not even my customer yet. You haven't bought anything. You haven't done anything for me. And it was like, and it got to the point where I had to block the guy. Because it was just like, you oh, know, but Jesus. it's all, sometimes it's too much work. It's too much work sometimes. Yeah, that's uh, that's shitty. Well, I mean, it happens. People are not. There's certain people that are not nice. Yeah, I, I will say if anybody's considering 
And I'd be curious what you guys' take is on this. If you are considering taking deposits, um, if I were to do it again, because uh, that's how I used to do my customs and stuff. Uh, first off, um, deposits would go into some sort of an escrow account. They wouldn't be part of that kind of cash flow that 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 I was talking about earlier. Um, they would go into an escrow account. That way, if somebody, either somebody, for whatever reason, need their money back, boom, they could have it right then. Or if somebody became a problem like that guy, boom, money back, you're gone. I don't have to deal with you anymore. But I will say, if you do do deposits, uh, people, like a weird psychology thing happens where people feel like, and I think part of it is that they're excited, which we've talked about before, uh, and Jeff has pointed out, and which is a good, very good point to make. People are excited about these things, but all of a sudden when they give you money, they feel like they own your ass in a way. And and sometimes people, most people yeah. can be pretty nice. Other people can be fucking pieces of shit about it. And to me, it's not worth doing it anymore because of that small number of people. They ruined it for everybody else. And so I'm done with it. That's what you used to get these ex people would say, oh, just checking in. Wanted a status report on the knife. You know, I'd get that and it would be like, bro, bro, we're not <laughs> going through this every day. I got a guy once, he got my, he got my, he texted me. He started texting me, he was in California and he texted me in the middle of the night saying, oh just God. wanted to know how's it going with the knife? How's it going with the knife? And I was just like, bro, I said I'd have it on a specific day. You'll have it a week before the day. You can't, this is not for you. This is not for me either. But you know what is for me? Maritime Knife Supply. That's right, guys. Maritime Knife Supply in Canada. MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. It's the one-stop shop for knife makers. If you want steel, belts, abrasives, handle material, tools, forges, kilns, all that stuff. They're also the Canadian distributor of combat abrasives. They're the Canadian distributor of, of, of Broadbeck Ironworks. They're the Canadian distributor of Damasteel and rhino wet all that stuff go to maritimeknifesupply.com and if you get a pack of 10 a 10 pack of abrasive belts they're going to give you one free so that's 10 percent off and they are the sponsor of the great lakes custom knife show the great lakes custom knife show is on august 19th in ontario saturday on august 19th in ontario go follow the great lakes custom knife show or visit the great lakes custom knife show.com Maritime Knife Supply, we're with you. There you go. What do you think about uh, deposits there, Don? Uh, oh, I love that. That's a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> uh, uh, go ahead. I don't know. I just don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You know or you don't know. If, the, if someone's saying to you, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a prospective buyer. Don, I want a set of knives. Money is no object, and I want you to put me at the head of the line. I'm willing to give you 75% of the cost. You know what, Don? You're such a talented guy, and I want to get on the head of the line. I will pay you the whole thing up front, and I'll give you 25% ex, uh, ex, expedited uh, cash flow. We used to do that, by the way. There was a guy who wanted to jump the head of the line, and Tony says, I'm going to charge him. I want to see if he'll bite, bite a, like a 15% uh, expedited charge. <laughs> What do you do? Guy wants to pay you fifty thousand dollars to make seven knives. That's the going rate for you, anyway. What do you <laughs> do? Uh, depends what he wants. Um, honestly, sometimes the number doesn't matter. It, it's up to like what I what I want to work on, what I have on the list currently. 
and how I feel if it's doable or not. So most, a lot of my projects are unknown. They're experimental. A lot of them are stuff that I haven't done before. So I have no idea how it's actually going to go. So if somebody wants a 50 grand set, that's going to make me a little hesitant because that's going to lock me down for who knows how long. Um, and that makes it a little bit scary for me business-wise because if we're, we're running a small operation. Like The ups and downs are already hard enough. If, if it's a 50 grand project, that's a huge up that could be taking up who knows what how much of my my year that is so i don't know it, it depends don you got to make the mess that's the oldest story in the book make the mess you're not gonna take the 50 grand i'm taking the 50 grand don Mareko. Mm. <laughs> yeah somebody offers you 50 grand for a set straight <sighs> no deposit nothing what are you gonna do uh i i don't know honestly you guys <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm like fucking sign the dotted line. I don't even sign the dotted line. Let's fucking get it. Let's do it. I'm, I'm, I'm calling up Allison. I'm calling up Tony. I'm like, let's fucking roll. Let's fucking run some jobs to the shop. See, I see it like the way my old, my old fabrication shop used to be like. They, we would take jobs to run through the shop. And it was like, it was worth it to make the mess wanted to make payroll wanted to pay insurance wanted to pay the rent wanted to pay the rent at the house wanted to pay this one pay that why buy this buy that i would take on jobs because in the greater good i don't have never screwed anybody not one person not one customer of mine have i ever like avoided or whatever i'm running the job through the shop period 50 grand i'm with you let's go fucking go buy some abrasive belts and let's fucking go (laughs) (laughs) i would say it depends on the project if if they want to just like a straight like seven piece damascus chef's knife set i'd do it but if they started asking for like seven piece tuna sword set with gold inlay and all this other stuff that i've never done before that's uh questionable well the the R and D part, the R and D part would be tough. That's see, that's the point. I'm just, I was assuming it's stuff that you've already done before, or have have done, or can do. I'm not thinking about it like it's stuff out of your like. If somebody offered me fifty thousand dollars and they wanted me to make like a you know like a you know a, a master smith quality folding knife, I'm gonna push them away only because I can't do it. Like, and I'm not gonna like spend the time and energy to get good at it. But if it's some standard shit that I do, you know, off the wrist, let's let's go. Yeah, I I think I'm with you. Um, Using my line again. I love the it. tricky, oh yeah. <laughs> the tricky part is sometimes I toe the line. Um, one example is the Chinese cleaver. Is like I've never done a knife like that before. Not even the Damascus included, but like I've never done that kind of size and shape. Um, and then also to do it in Damascus, and then to to do up the handle the way I wanted it to. Like, that's a lot of variables that have to come together. Um, and it's, it's a lot of unknowns. And so if I had to do a full set of stuff like that, I might turn it down because, like, this knife itself was already really difficult. If I had to do six more of these, I think I might lose my mind. I think you'd be up for the job. I feel like, I feel like you don't mind a little toil, Don. I mind a little. I don't think you do mind that much toil. I think you like, I think you work on toil. I think I work on toil. I'll take some toil. I'll take toil all day. Let's do it. 
Next question, oh, guys, the two of you. The two, this is something for the both of you. I was looking at Don's knives, and one of the things besides, you know, your knives are always very, uh, people recognize them immediately. A lot of it's the handle. Both of you do the faceted handles. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Don, is your decision-making, and I want to know your opinion too, Mareko, is your decision-making in regards to where your bolster lies. I feel as though your bolster is lower on the handle than the heel, which and I'm wondering, you know what I'm saying? Does that mean, no, when I say lower, I mean f- farther back from the plunge line. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a more like an, a more like um, that Asian style where the, 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 the like to say Japanese style where the, 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 the handle, the handle bolster, the ferrule ends, and then you have a lot long, a lot more ricasso for lack of a better term. And then the heel. Is that yeah. a, is that a, because that's consistent with all your knives besides, you know, your angular bolsters and stuff like that. Can you tell me about that transition and how you kind of got there? I don't know about that part specifically. Um, I think I've just, I mean, a lot of my stuff is Japanese inspired. So that's a huge part right there. I think it was just a, an aesthetic that I really liked and I just picked up one day and I was like, oh, this this feels nice to me. I like the way it looks. I like the like kind of like the visual balance of it where it like stretches the handle and makes it look a little bit more sleek and you get um I don't know, like a little it's like a little speedster of a knife. Hmm. I, not all of mine are like that. Some of them have shorter ricassos. I think it depends on like what the blade looks like. If it's a kind of like a stubbier looking blade, then I'll generally do a little bit shorter of a ricasso. Um, and then pair that with the bolster to kind of match with it. What makes you decide to do that angular bolster? Is there something in mind? Sometimes it's just what I'm feeling. Sometimes it's just like I I have a blade just like laying there or a set of like handle material laying there and, and I kind of see what I what I like and it just pops into my mind and I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's do that. I don't know. It's a little bit random sometimes. Mareko, when I look at your knives especially, and I see there there is a relationship. You and Don are friends. You've been friends for a long time. You have there's a lot of aesthetic decisions that you guys have both kind of latched onto. Talk to me more about the idea of the faceted handle. And I, I'm interested in both of your takes in regards to the faceted handle. Um, honestly, <laughs> my first faceted handle that I put out um, was kind of a fuck you to another maker who was being a, a shithead about handles. Nice. Uh, he thought <laughs> he had this genius idea of a new western style handle but it's got japanese i was like this fucker's gonna do this handle that i had already kind of done a little bit or had been drawing and stuff but i hadn't uh i hadn't actually made one and posted about it and and so one day i blasted it out and posted it up and i was really excited about it but it was really like a fuck you to that guy because he's a dick and he can suck it um (laughs) but from there what's really great about it though is that uh don also like me and don and yellow hosenberg kind of within a few months of each other 
were really honestly were the first faceted western style handles that i'd seen that were interesting um and in the way that you know some some people will do they'll take a western and then they'll they'll just knock the corners off but that's to me from a kind of more of an aesthetic quality like that's not really doing it for me um but by putting together like this combination of complex facets and everything being really nicely symmetrical and from side to side um and kind of look making the handle look like a cut gemstone rather than more of like a traditional western style handle is what um i think the three of us really kind of i and don might have a better idea of who else might have done it first or earliest but really kind of like and i i honestly i give more credit to don and yellow for doing it i think before me even but i hadn't seen their stuff i hadn't seen them do it um and which is why i kind of feel like i'm trying to really i'm just trying to ride the coattail their coattails <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so i look cool too uh but that, yeah, the faceted Western, it was, you know, it's a really complex thing to try to meld what is traditionally a highly contoured, like think about like a, like muscle cars from the fifties and stuff like that. Kind of a little bit bubbly, but some sharp lines and stuff like that, where we're going to like, like Lamborghinis, like they have all these different flowing and fast looking lines, but also like these hard transitions and facets. Um, and so trying to make that look right on what is a traditionally contoured handle, I think is really tricky um, and kind of the fun of the challenge, at least for me personally. What do you think, Don? Hmm. It definitely, I mean, I had been doing faceted handles before then. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't new to me, but the Western handle was new. And I think I just, I just wanted to do a Western with facets. That was really the simple answer. And I'm pretty sure you did yours first anyways, Marco. Like, uh, I think I remember seeing yours first. And then I started doing a Western handle and I threw some facets in there. And from there on, it, it was more of like trying to put combinations of facets together rather mm -hmm. than just doing facets for the sake of doing facets, which is what I kind of see a lot out there. Sure. I don't want, like, I see a... I've I have also done this too. I've just thrown as many facets as possible in there <laughs> because I don't know. I wanted to flex or something, but it just doesn't. I'm trying to make stuff that's more like it has a theme. I want to make something that's iconic, and a lot of times that means it's using less of stuff. So I'm trying to make the most out of the fewest facets possible now, mm. but still make it comfortable. Um, I just the lines have to work together they have to flow they like things have to complement each other like i want to see like stuff in the front like fit in with the stuff in the back and i want to you know like it's got to flow and that's that's just where i'm at nowadays i i think the origin of it is really simple it was just like i wanted to do westerns i've been doing angular stuff already so i just melded them together right I've never done a, a faceted handle. It, it would, to a certain degree, I can understand why I would. One of the reasons why I say that is when I first started forging, I was using, I didn't realize that you could change your handles. I thought when they make you blacksmithing hammers, you just do it, you make them the way they, whatever they come, that's how you use them. 
And then I saw one of my teachers, Fred Christ, he had an octagon handle. And I realized, he told me, he's like, yeah, well, you know, when you put it, when you grab it in your hand, there's no, there's not a lot of slipping and stuff like that. So I threw some, I had some old petting house hammers and I put some octagons in them uh, and with some spoke shaves and they felt great. And I thought, well, maybe I should do this with the, with the uh, wah style handles. A lot of people are doing that. And I did it. And then all of a sudden I started to realize that I didn't like the facets on the, I didn't like the facets on my hammers. And I was just like, I don't want, I don't want this anymore. Like I'm not, I'm not gaining anything when I'm forging out for a long time with it. I'm I, actually, it's not comfortable whatsoever. And then I made the decision. I was like, well, if I'm going to, then I need to, then I need to do that with the knives too. And now all the Western style or the Eastern style handles, the wasp style handles, I make, I have two, I have a flat on the top, flat on the bottom, and then there are the sides are both round. And it's become an oval. And I've made, I've, I've made the decision to, to stick with this kind of oval size. A lot of it's because, and I'm interested in what you have to say, Don, too, is because they're frame handles, I make the frame, if I have a couple liners and then a, a different color liner in the middle, I also want to uh, accentuate that with the handle itself. Most of the knives that you make, I see, Don, they're frame-style handles. Does the fact that if you have liners and uh, other stripes or whatever you want to call them, does that affect how you do your facets? Not really. The only thing that affects is it gives me an easier like center line as a reference. Right. But other than that, the shapes are just about the same. It's a little bit more limiting because I can't grind into the liner the same way that I would just like a straight up solid block. But the shapes... The shapes aren't affected by the, the frame. Because if you have if your if your outside liners are three sixteenths, but then all of a sudden you realize that now I gotta grind all the way up to that. You you your chain you ha you do have to change based on your handles aren't gonna be the same. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like you're not gonna drill yeah. you're not gonna grind halfway through that three sixteenth liner. Exactly. It's gonna look hideous. So in that case I'd be more careful about the shape or I ideally would just plan the liners better. Very good. Look at you. Look at you. What else? What else should we talk about, guys? I mean, we didn't really. Should we hit a question or two and get the fuck out of here or what? Do you have anything sure. you want to bring up, Don? Mm. Nothing off the top of my head right. so far. We hit everything you wanted to hit. All right. So let's hit a couple questions. Uh, before we do that, I just want to talk to everybody about KnifePrint. KnifePrint is a great uh, service that allows you to learn how to get involved with. CAD and water jet stuff. So, well, not water jet stuff. It makes you learn how to use CAD. It's a very simple, uh, it's a simple program. You go to knifeprint.com and then no, there's no downloading software, no licensing agreements. It's a very good and easy entry point into designing knives and using software to make your, your knives very easy to work with. And they're also doing these great master smith, uh, these master class video series with uh, Dennis Terrell is, if, uh, is doing how to use uh, knife print. And my, our friend uh, Henry Hyde, he uses knife print now. And it's a great way to be able to learn how to design your knives in CAD. And then you can send it off to somebody to get water jet cut. Uh, and what I understand is knifeprint.com also, knife also has a system where they can get you water jet cut. So you can do the, the designing and then you, they send it off to somewhere close and then they'll water jet cut it for you in the mail. So definitely check out uh, what's going on over at knifeprint.com. Do you want to hit a question there, uh, Mareko? You have the first one? Yeah, this first one's actually, I think it would be good to talk with 
to get Don's input with. Uh, yeah. It is from Meek Custom Knives. He says, hey, Cunningham, let me ask you something. Uh, I'm on the lookout for a sharpening system for my culinary knives. I'm trying to find something with which I can keep a consistent bevel angle. I'm, uh, I've looked at several different brands, and each seemed to break my bank. Do you guys have any recommendations? What are you using? I've used my whetstones, and they work great, but anything to expedite the sharpening process while easily keeping a good angle helps. Thank you for the show and keeping us flea bags entertained. So what do you guys think about sharpening systems, sharpening techniques? Um, what do you think, Don? I'm a romanticist. I like the stones and I like the practice of them, but I understand that it's not for everybody. And I see sharpening systems out there and I'm sure some of them work well, but I see they're often really big, really expensive. If you want to have the control over like the profile and the angle, or they're limiting in the fact that you can't control those variables individually. And so you're stuck with whatever, angle you get a peel versus the tip um i don't i don't know if there's a good system that i've seen that i like i'm also not shopping for one so i haven't mm. i'm not up to date what do you okay. think Marekko? yeah i think um i i really so i used to do uh everything on stone but it can be at times very time uh intensive especially if you're working with a, a high um, wear resistant steel of any kind um and so i start now by setting my geometry on my grinder carefully um but using my grinder um and then finishing on machines that way i'm kind of establishing the geometry that i'm looking for finishing on stones and then finishing on stones yeah Sorry, did I not say stones? <laughs> My bad. Uh, so yeah, so finishing on stones, and then um, and and that honestly has taken my hand sharpening. Uh, or my time on the stone from being anywhere from uh, as 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 long as like 20 to 40 minutes down to like five minutes on the stone. Uh, and so I just start on the machine uh, and then I finish on the stone. I just use, I, I don't use any sharpening system. I, I Mine is mostly from practice, although I, it, it's, it's not like some weird badge of honor for me. I really would like to figure out a jig setup so that I can get more consistent uh, angles. Um, and right now I'm just kind of doing everything by eye, but I would like a setup um, that, that could help accomplish that. I think the problem I, I have seen with a lot of sharpening systems is that only a small portion of whether it's a grinding stone or grinding wheel uh, or belts or whatever is, is it's only in contact with a small portion of the blade at a time. And I want more blade support, more support across the a majority of that edge, especially to help prevent any kind of weird undercutting, especially near the heel. Um, and so yeah. the, the way I've do, done that, uh, worked to fight against that is I sharpen with my knife edge vertical to the length of my platen so that I'm getting more support down that long platen that the broadbacks have um, to help support that edge 
and help prevent that weird undercutting that almost always happens at the heel. Um, and I have seen some stone systems like uh, John Broido over Japanese um, Knife Imports has these really great, like big horizontal rotating, like wet sharpening stone systems that I think would be are really cool. Uh, I think somebody could probably figure something out with like a disc. Uh, especially a disc that goes vertical and then ha- and then have like an angle bar. But that way on a nine inch disc, you have more support, especially for culinary knives. It's not necessarily that big of an issue with bowies and daggers and stuff like that. But with culinary knives, if you get any kind of undercut, that knife isn't going to perform properly. It's going to mess up the, the performance of that edge. And so for me, it's all about having more um, edge engaged with the surface or, or like the support, the platen or whatever, um, while establishing if I'm using a machine. But like I said, for a long time, I would do a lot of my grinding and, and then my hand sanding, and then I would go to this stone and I would eat it. I would take that time because I would, I, I would, I was doing everything I could to help prevent that weird under, undercutting that can occur. And by working on a stone, one, you're, you're removing material slowly. Uh, but two, it's a long, flat surface. You have more support across the stone. You can kind of have a bit more control over uh, where the force is being put by placing your fingers in different places along the edge, but also, you know, how it's actually cutting across that surface of the of the cutting edge. Well, I I have hated my old system. I was not a fan of Tormek. And now I'm back on feet first. I am all in on Tormek. I actually had drinks with the Tormek guys with Tomer. Whoa! I am all in with Tomer. Uh, with I got a I got a Tormek uh, six years ago, seven years ago. Okay. And I just had a hard time with the jig, and mm. then I was talk. Tomer uses Tormex, and I would talk to him and I'd watch how he does it, and then I started playing with it over the years. And then I finally figured out a system with the Tormek that I love. And I would, it takes away material, it's water-cooled, it works like a sto- like stones, and it's not taking off too much material. And now I have three Tormeks, one each different grit. And Whoa. it's changed my fucking shit. And I will say, oh, dude, I, it's changed everything. They sent me the 50th, 50th anniversary one. They sent me the diamond wheels, and there's no dressing of the wheels, which is unbelievable. So I'm a big Tormek fan. I, I, it's not they're not cheap, but I swear to God, I've been I've been consistently doing a great job. But my sharpening's never been better. I'm not taking off too much material, and I mm. can do production. Like I, it's that's the thing. It's like also per, you're in production. You're gonna clamp everything to a Lansky system. You know, if you got a hundred knives, you're gonna <laughs> clamp everything into a Lansky system. Right. It, yeah, that's kind sure. of a production too. But yeah. I, I got, I'm, I'm, you know, it's a, it's an important thing to think about. I get worried because that's what was happening to me when I was using the, the belts is I was definitely taking a little bit too much material off the back, the heel. Mm-hmm. And I was having a hard time figuring out how to hold it. And yeah. the Tormek just, I don't really, you know, you're not taking off as much material. So, I mean, that's my opinion, but stones too. It slowed me down. That's It slowed me down and made me better at sharpening. That's for sure. And it's not like you know, zip, 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 it's done. But at the same time, I'm getting all the, I'm hitting all the things I want, which is consistency and a great edge. And I'm not taking off too much material and I have control and it's repeatable. So that's my opinion. You know, Benjamin, Benjamin, how long, how long does it take you to sharpen one on your system? 
Well, you know, what's interesting is, is it ha- made me change the way I finish my knives too. Like I'm much more, that's, I think that's one of the things that people have an issue with. It's, it's preparing how far do you go up until you get to ready for sharpening. And now I can sharpen a knife that's ready to go in probably with, with one knife, one knife, maybe six minutes, seven minutes from, from not sharp, from no edge to ready to go put ship in the mail. Six minutes or so. I take my time. I'm a little bit. I take a little bit more time on it, and I, which I appreciate. I don't need to be done in two seconds. I'd rather spend a little bit more time on it. There you go. Okay. Don, Don Nguyen. Mm. What's next for Don Nguyen? What's you got going on? What's cooking? What do you got going on? What's next? Uh, we've got a batch of boning knives coming up. Another small batch. These ones are going to be interesting because now I'm playing a, with the idea of hollow ground boning knives mm. and the reason for that was we had a, we had some boning knives go out to the local butcher here and man one of them was blue steel and i was like oh this is gonna last him so long he's never gonna need to sharpen it that much and then lo and behold like now it looks like a toothpick <sighs> and i'm just like holy shit like the edge is so thick like mm. the it's basically half the width that it used to be and it, it's just like it's so thick now and i'm just thinking man if i'm gonna be making boning knives out for the world and i know they're gonna be used hard and sharpened on a regular basis like these are some of the hardest used knives out there yeah. like how do i make the edges last longer over the repeated sharpenings and i'm just like it's got to be a hollow grind like it's gonna be way harder to grind them because now we're not really using the disc grinder anymore, which like that that makes everything so much easier for us to get to high grit and be able to finish. So now it's like, okay, now it's hand grinding the hollows freehand and getting them to high grit off of that. And it just takes longer for each knife, but I think they feel way better. I was chopping through some wood with one of them and like there's no edge damage at all. Like the, the edges are still really durable and stuff. And by the time you're at half the width, the edge is still going to be at like 30 thou. Oh, nice. Which, That's great. Which compared to like the previous boning knife that I made out there is like, oh my God, it's like half half the edge thickness. Like that thing was, it was a fucking bludgeon. Mm-hmm. So that's that's next. And then uh, what else do we got? You're teaching in November. Teaching in November, yep. Are there, are there, are there, is there room available or... There is room available right now. I don't know how many spots are left. Um, but yeah, we're teaching that next class. That'll be the only one for this year. And then we'll see if I'm going to teach one or two next year. I'm not sure yet. How do people um, find? How do people sign up and find get your, get themselves into this class? Which How many days is the class? It's four days. Four days. And you will walk out with a Don Win approved knife when you're done, right? Correct. Yep. You'll oh, walk wow. out with an with basically a finished knife um let's see it's if you want to sign up for the class or check it out it, look up desert metal craft in tucson arizona you'll be able to find the class on there four days november 9th to 12th it's nine to five and then usually on sunday we do a nice fun dinner at the end um yeah you learn a lot and the the nice thing about the class is it's me and sam teaching the class like you'll we'll dump knowledge down on you that would be, I mean, I can't think of a better, a better 
getting dumped on is what you want in a class, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we leave, before we leave, there's one thing I got a message and I really want to bring this up. This came from our friend Chad Kimmel sent me a message in regards to our friend Bob Rankin. Uh, Bob Rankin just recently lost uh, his son and they're doing a raffle. They're raffling two knives, a K-tip and a Santuco, Santoku, to support Bob Rankin and the economic impact of losing his son. His son was an eight-year U.S. Navy vet. Some of the steel from Tower 2 at the World Trade Center is going to be the Damascus, and then the pins are going to be forged from uh, cable from the USS Eisenhower. The handle material has white oak planted. All right, pl- white oak. Chad. Chad says, and this is, I guess this is true. He says, the handle was material has white oak planted by George Washington, all certified and documented. These are some high level knives. I'm not making a joke, but at the same time, I didn't read it was planted by George Washington. Um, All certified. The video of the build will be up on Dennis Terrell's YouTube page. And to enter, all you have to do is go to Bob Rankin's website, Bob Rankin Custom Knives, and Mm. buy one of the stickers. You you can't miss it. It's It's a sticker. And once you buy the stickers, it, you're, it automatically enters you into these things, and and the, it's going to go through the 31st, through the 31st, August 31st. The raffle will be up the 31st. So if you're a knife maker and you listen to this podcast, you know Bob Rankin. He makes my Damascus. He's an awesome dude. He's a great part of this community. If you want to go back into the archives, uh, Craig interviewed him, and then I'm going to have him on full blast at the end of July. Um, but this is definitely worthy of your time and energy. Bob Rankin deserves this. He's, he's been through enough. He's been through enough. So he needs your help. Bob Rankin, custom Get yourself one of them. $25, uh, stickers support, support our boy, support our boy. Is there anything last to say? We, we, uh, anything you want to add Mareko for Don questions for Don or uh, no, not that I can think of. Uh, is there anything lately, Don, that you've been really excited to be cooking? I know. I think one of the last times we chatted, you were doing a lot of uh, ah. like pho and like ah. ramen, and so I'm curious what you've been cooking lately. You know, I haven't cooked anything fun in a in a bit. I want to get back into ramen. I want to start making pho again. I actually just got the pho book from Andrea Wynn. Mm. Really excited to read through that and like kind of like know a bit more history of the the dish and the culture and then learn some more secrets because I, I do kind of like a hodgepodge fall. Like I've learned a little bit from my mom. I picked up some stuff from YouTube and recipes and made my own version based off of like ramen techniques, but it'd be nice to then like kind of read through an actual book full of full of it. Um can't wait till it cools down so we could do some yakitori. My girlfriend got me a yakitori grill and like bean jatan and stuff. And oh my god, Dang, it's so fun. good. The the bean jatan makes everything taste good, like unreal. That's the charcoal that like lasts forever and there's no smoke, right? Correct. And it's like it's, twenty five dollars a briquette. I don't know how much it is. It's, <laughs> I think it's like uh, sixty dollars. I think it's like sixty dollars a bag. <laughs> it's good shit though yeah, it's like, good it takes shit. a lot of energy to light like anybody who's lit it for the first time they're just like what the fuck yeah it took an hour to light this shit but you could do it indoors i mean there's like no there's no smoke oh, really you could, there, well until you put the food on it yeah <laughs> the food will smoke like a motherfucker 
Mm-hmm. Careful with there that, Jeff, because that I think is, it, the, the, so coal, the charcoal will still continue to consume oxygen in the air. Dude, even though it's not burning, you think it's our, smokeless burn. It's still. <laughs> listen, I'm not. Listen, I'm not saying I'm not. Our listeners are not buying sixty dollars bags of charcoal. That I can tell you, and they're not going to. But Jeff told Jeff told me I could do it inside. Guys, just relax. Everybody, relax. Don Nguyen, Don Nguyen knives on Instagram. You guys know him. You guys know him. He's the man. He's the guy you're all ripping off. <laughs> everybody relax. Everybody relax. It's all right. Everybody relax. Calm down. Calm down. Don wins the man. Thanks for filling in. Um, we're going to have you back. Definitely have you back. 100%. That'll be fun. It's so good to hear your voices again. You too. Thanks you for too, making man. the effort. All right, guys. Next week, we're going to have Craig back. We're going to hear what he's been up to. He's got all sorts of stuff going on. And uh, what does he say? Bye for now. Is that what he says? He's bye for yeah, now. I like said bye for now. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Something like that. Bye for now. Well, that didn't sound good. Let's try that again. Bye for now. That's better. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.